may take a seat. Well, the title of today's sermon is The Unknown God. Uh, we have before, you, uh, before us a text that speaks about the great need of society in our day, to know God. That is the greatest need, to know God. Not any God, but the true God. The great need of humanity is to know God. Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 2, that it is not good for the soul to be without knowledge. Knowledge is an important thing. The great need of the soul is to be saved. And in order to be saved, one must have faith. We are told that he who believes will be saved, and he who does not believe is already condemned. And Paul, when he writes to the Romans, he says, How will they believe in whom they have not heard? There is a need in order for faith to be exercised to know. We are told that salvation is conversion. That unless you are born again, you will not enter the kingdom of God. There is a need to, to be converted, to be born again, to be regenerated. But regeneration is about knowledge. It is about God's spirit regenerating us so that we may know him. Opening our eyes, opening our hearts, just like, Paul, just like God did to Lydia, as we considered a few weeks ago. The greatest need of humanity is to be saved, and to be saved is to love the Lord. The Apostle Paul says that let everyone who does not, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. How can you love God if you, don't know, if you don't know him? How can you love that which you don't know? Ignorance, in this case, begets, as uh, the, uh, the old Puritans used to say, ignorance begets lack of desire. You can call, you can, you can say it with your mouth, I love the Lord, dear Lord. You can say these things, but if you don't know who the Lord is, you don't really know him. Serving the Lord without knowledge is not the service that God desires. It's the service that the Ecclesiastes speaks of as the service of fools, the worship of fools. Or as we can call it in light of this passage today, idolatry. You cannot love the Lord if you don't know him. You love something else. You learn something that you formed in your imagination, just like the Athenians, the Greeks did. But you're far from loving the true God, the God of heaven and earth. And that's something of what we will consider today. Let me just give you a, a brief summary of uh, the context of this passage. To some of you, it's kind of like going through the motions of, of reminding ourselves of the previous week's sermons. But it's good for us to see the, the, the thrust and the direction uh, of the book of Acts. 
Over the past few weeks, we've been considering the second missionary journey of Paul. We've considered how he started the second missionary journey by going into Asia Minor. And it was his desire, after visiting the, first, the churches that he had established in the first missionary's journey, he was his desire to stay around that area, Asia. But he was prevented by the Holy Spirit from continuing there. He eventually found himself in Macedonia, in, in the city of Philippi, and that's the first city of Europe to be reached by the, the, the gospel of our Lord. He eventually uh, preached the word to this lady called Lydia. The Lord opened her heart. She believed. We heard about the, the conversion or the liberation of that slave woman that was possessed by a spirit of divination and how Paul and Silas were arrested uh, and a, a miraculous earthquake released them that led to the conversion of the Philippian jailer and his family. After that, Paul, uh, after some discussion and some facing and standing up to the authorities of Philippi, Paul left to Thessalonica, and the reaction there was mixed as well. Some believed, but many didn't. The Jews raised up a mob to, to persecute Paul, and Paul was uh, taken uh, or had to leave to Berea. Last week we considered Berea and how Paul uh, found the, the Jews in Berea to be more fair-minded, to be more noble, because they received the word with eagerness, with readiness. They searched diligently and daily the word of God. And the result is that, therefore, they were saved. But alas, the result there was mixed as well, because the Jews from Thessalonica, who had just accused Paul of turning the world upside down, which is not a very bad uh, Accusation. It, it is a truthful one, turning the world the right side up, that is. Uh, they came to Berea and they were trying to cause trouble. So Paul was taken to Athens. And when he arrived at Athens, we read in, in uh, chapter 17, verse 15, after they received the command or he gave a command that Silas and Timothy were to come to him as soon as possible, with all speed. So they departed. And that's where we find ourselves, while Paul waited for them at Athens. So today, under the title of The Unknown God, I want to consider this passage, but we will have to consider it in two parts. This will be the, the first part, where we will consider the setting more and the situation more. And Lord willing, next week, we will consider the sermon that Paul preaches in the Areopagus. So today we will consider how God's man confronts, as John MacArthur said, Satan's city. How Athens affected Paul and how Paul affected Athens. So firstly, how did the city of Athens affect Paul? We read that Paul was there waiting while Paul waited in the city of Athens we all know Athens. It's a very familiar city to us. Uh, not that we've been there. I don't know if anyone has been there, but it's a well-known city. We know this, the, the, that Athens is the capital of Greece. And it was at the time uh, a, a city in the province of Achaia, where is today Greece, to the south of Macedonia. If again you want to look at the maps or if you would desire to do so, uh, Athens is to the south of uh, Philippi, of 
Thessalonica, Berea. It's in a different province. It's not the same province. Uh, and the city of Athens in the day of Paul was a, a grand city. It wasn't as big as it used to be in the time of Pericles in the 5th century before Christ. Athens reached its peak. It was the moment where Athens was at, at its highest point. But after Pericles' uh, time, Spartans came and they conquered the, the city. The empires uh, crumbled. The uh, Greek empire crumbled. And after that came the kingdom of Macedonia who conquered the city as well. And by the time that we are reading this in our Bibles, it was the Romans ruling over Achaia and the city of Athens. In Paul's time, the city was renowned for its politics, for its culture, for its religion, for its philosophy, for its stunning architecture. You could not get close to the city and look at the higher city, at the Acropolis, and, and not be in awe of the architecture. It was a stunning sight to see the, Parth the, Parthenon, the Parthenon. Even to this day, you can go to the, to the British Museum and see uh, pieces and fragments of, uh, of that age, things that Paul saw with his own eyes. And they are stunning indeed. Historically, Athens was the, the, the cradle, as it is called, of Western society. It was there in Athens that Plato, the philosopher, had started a school, Plato's Academy. It was there that he, one of his students, his most famous student, Aristotle, founded the, 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 his Lyceum. It was there that Plato saw Socrates being killed by the, the rulers of Athens. Other philosophers, famous philosophers like Pericles, Sophocles, there was, there, it was in Athens. That's why Athens was such an important city, the birthplace of democracy, the birthplace of music, it is called, the birthplace of ethics, theater, and medicine. But by the time that Paul was there, the city was in decline, as I said. Its population was declining, but yet the, the city was still grand, and beautiful and culturally relevant. Nothing could really compare in the, in the West to the city of Athens. If you had to, well, I'm not going to do comparisons to our own day. But, but it was, there was no comparison. There was no other city, perhaps Rome in, for different reasons, but there was no other city in Europe as great historically and culturally as Athens. And I'm sure it was an overwhelming city to be in. And Paul was overwhelmed. We read that he was overwhelmed, but not for the, the reasons that I just stated. As Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, we read, when he saw that the city was given over to idols. He was overwhelmed indeed, but he wasn't overwhelmed by the culture, by the philosophy, by the grand architecture. He was overwhelmed by what was going on in that city. The city was full of idols. The city was overrun with idols, given over to idols. John Calvin said that the, the heart of man is desperately corrupt. It is a permanent factory of errors. 
You could say that Athens is desperately corrupt. It is a permanent factory of idols. There are idols everywhere. And while Paul here seems to have been doing the typical thing of a tourist, as he waits for Silas and Timothy, as he waits for Silas and Timothy to make their way to him, he seems to have taken a step back and maybe enjoy some well-deserved, well-earned rest. Uh, He cannot help it. As he walks the the cities, uh, the streets of that famous, the famous streets of that city, as he goes through those roads and those marketplaces, he cannot help himself but to be overwhelmed and provoked in his spirit. This is a great challenge to us, isn't it? This is a great challenge to us because how is it that we react at the sight of idols? How is it that we react at the sight of the fallenness of our society? We often, when we see our society going the way it's, it's going, we, did, we, we react as a, a kind of a, a higher snobber, a snobbish kind of attitude. Look at how they're behaving. Isn't that the, the way that often we behave? This kind of snobbish attitude as Christians. We detach ourselves from what we see and we just raise our heads and, and go, ooh, what they're, look at what they're doing. So that's why I think Paul's reaction is such a challenge to us. Because he wasn't snobbish as he looked into the city. He was deeply provoked. And the word for provoked here is is a, a heavy word. I don't, it's the same word that Luke uses earlier in Acts 14, if I'm not mistaken, when he's talking about Paul and Barnabas having this uh, very divisive argument between themselves. The, angry, the anger there, you remember how we consider that it was no small disagreement. It was a, a very strong contention, a sharp disagreement between them. It's the same word. It's paroxysm. It's the same word if you were to pick up an Old Testament translation in, in Greek, uh, like it was available in the days of Paul and of Luke, the, the Septuagint. If you were to pick up the, the, old, the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, it is the same word, this word provoked, it's the same word that is used of God when he contemplates the idolatry of his people, that God is provoked to anger. Paul is being provoked to anger at the sight of this idolatry. He's exceedingly, sharply provoked there is no stronger word, I believe, for this. It's not that he was just a little bit provoked. It's that he's incensed with, this, with the sight of, of idolatry. You see, Athens is this beautiful city, as I told you, as, as we know from history. Alongside all the gorgeous buildings, the public roads, the, the grand architecture, the, the columns, the classical architecture, alongside those, those beautiful uh, pieces of art, of marble, gold and silver, alongside the philosophy and, and the literature and the politics, alongside all those things, there is something lying in the sight of every, anyone who would see 
with spiritual eyes that is so nefarious and so dark. It's all beautiful in the facade, but underneath it, it's death and, and perdition. The Apostle Paul saw more than just the, the beautiful things. He saw a city steeped in sin and idolatry. The idols were made of bronze, stone, marble, and gold. But he saw more than the precious stones and the beautiful uh, artistry. He saw that it, this city was a monument to idolatry. It was said by some ancient writers uh, at the time, or more contemporary with Paul, it was said that there were more idols in Athens than there were people. And perhaps for you it's difficult to imagine, but you go into a Roman Catholic city uh, in Italy, in South Italy, or in my country even, or in Spain, and you can see how there are so many churches, and every church is filled up with hundreds of, of, of statues of saints and creatures and all of this. You can see how a city would easily have more uh, statues than inhabitants, more idols than inhabitants. Paul saw more than those that are, than the, just the architecture and the beauty. He was provoked. He saw spiritually. Raynan, that uh, French 19th century, I believe, French uh, atheist, he said that, I'm going to paraphrase here, there's probably a little bit of uh, racism involved in this quote, but it is what he said, that ugly little Jew abused Greek art by describing those statues as idols. That ugly little Jew described Greek art by this, uh, abused Greek art by describing those statues as idols. You see, Paul cared nothing about that architecture. He was seeing things spiritually. He was not overwhelmed by the city. There was a, a contemporary... Well, 50 years after Paul, there was this visitor to Greece. Uh, his name was Pausanias. Uh, he came to Athens and he was so overwhelmed by the beauty of Athens uh, that he resolved to visit, continue uh, his visit throughout Greece. And he wrote six volumes, 5,000 pages of, of his experience of Greek culture and Greek uh, uh, philosophy and uh, Greek artistry. For Paul, he says, full of idols. Don't need much more to describe Athens. Full of idols. Because Paul saw with spiritual eyes. We know this. Uh, you think of your own profession. You think of your own interests. You think of your own, or let me put, detach this from ourselves. Imagine a builder comes into this, to this church he cannot help himself, can he? He will come into this church and he will analyze things through his own expertise, through his own uh, interest. He will look, are the bricks well laid up? Or, or uh, an architect will come into this church and look at the architecture of the church. Or, or a, a designer, interior designer will come in and say, hmm, we cannot help ourselves. I, used to, I, I, I remember having a co-worker 
She was a, a psychologist and she could, could not help it. Every single conversation I was having, and she would start, mm, tell me more about that. And it's like, stop psychologizing me. People cannot help it. We all know this. If you're a, a, a gardener, you go into someone's garden and you cannot help it. You're looking at the garden. If you're a teacher, you cannot help it. You're looking at the children's education wherever you go. That's perfectly natural. If you're a street cleaner, you go to a new city. What do you do? You look at the streets. Are they well clean? How are the street cleaners here? Are they well organized? Do they have? That's how we do things. How does Paul react when he comes to Athens? As a spiritual man? Not because he was an apostle, but as someone who had his eyes of understanding opened by the Spirit, he looks at the situation spiritually. The first thought as he, that enters his mind is spiritual. I wish we could do that. I pray that we would do that more often. How do we see our city? How do we see our district? How do we see our street? How do we see this nation? This nation is just as filled up with idols as, it, as Athens was back in the day. They're of a, they are of a different kind. We call them different names. We worship them in different... They worship them in a different way. But this nation is just as filled with idolatry as, as Athens was. This nation is just fully, uh, as full of idols as Athens was. You see, Paul, when he entered that city, he did not see the architecture. Well, he probably saw, but he saw beyond the architecture, he saw the lostness of men. He saw men and women, for their lack of knowledge of God, going to hell. Is that how we see? I submit to you, that's how we should see. Our Lord Jesus saw in this way, as he stood in the, in, uh, at the entrance in the, uh, of Jerusalem, I believe in the, in the Mount of Olives, right? Uh, he looked be, down into the city, and it was a grand city, I'm sure. I'm sure all of us would be overwhelmed with Jerusalem in the days of Jesus we would, we would be, oh, how did Jesus see it? He cried. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you under my wings? How would I have gathered you? As a hen, as a hen gathers her chicks, her chicks. Why is that? Because Jesus saw the lostness of Jerusalem. Paul saw the lostness of, uh, of Athens. But not only that. Not only was he provoked. Uh, not only Athens provoked and stirred his emotions. That is the fundamental point that we need to see. He was compelled to serve. I know I'm going slowly here. That's why it's going to be a two-part series, a two-part sermon. Verse 17, we read. Not only was he provoked, but he, therefore, because of his being provoked, he was compelled. He was compelled to do something about it, to serve, to go and to preach and to, and to proclaim in the synagogue, in the marketplace. You ask, how do you win the world for Christ? Well, you just go out there and you tell the world about Christ. 
What is the, the only appropriate action once you see in our, uh, the brokenness and the fallenness of, of your own city? You go and tell the city that there is hope, that there is good news, that there is a gospel to proclaim. It's really not that complicated. It's going to look differently for, for me and for you and for others. And we all have particular different set of gifts given to us by God. But he's expectant that we use those gifts for his kingdom. That's why he gave them to us. If you're a teacher, it's in, it's in, your, in your environment. If you're, whatever environment you're placed in, your, your job, your primary job is to proclaim the word of God to a fallen world. Sometimes you, when, when I go to these fraternals, pastors' meetings, and, uh, and uh, uh, the like, where you get to talk with other pastors, uh, some of the conversations are, uh, are similar from one place to the other. Um, you get asked, uh, sometimes I, got ask, uh, I get asked, uh, what is uh, the outreach work of your church? How does it look like? Is there any, an outreach plan in your church? Sometimes I just wonder, I sure hope so. I know, I know we have uh, the door-to-door work, I know we have uh, Sunday school and, and all of that, but I, I hope we have more than that. That's what I'm trying to say. I hope the outreach work of this church is not so much a thing we plan for, it's a thing we do day by day. Every day. You see, Paul here, he wasn't planning on doing this. At least that's what's implied in this, in, in this first two verses. He was waiting. He, was, he didn't want to work without having his companions. He was trying to be prudent about working alone. But there are some things that are just stronger than, than the prudence that so often we, we are ruled by. He just threw that caution to the wind and said, well, I cannot wait any longer. I need to preach this gospel. These people are going to hell. Evangelism, outreach, is not done just uh, once or twice a week in a, uh, as a part of a planned outreach work of the church. Outreach is uh, as we go into the world, we proclaim the good news of the gospel. Go into the world and make disciples. Some Greek uh, translators, some Greek uh, professors, uh, they rightfully, I believe, say, as they consider go into the world and make disciples, that the verb, uh, the tense of the verb in go into the world and make disciples is not the imperative. It's, it's more of a, as you go into the world, as you are in the world, make disciples. It's not a, just a command to go somewhere. It's a command to, as you go, as you walk, as you work, as you live in this world, make disciples. Teach them the things of Jesus. Reaching the lost is not the, pastor, the pastor's job. In as much of, as a pastor's uh, office goes, it's my job as a, as a member of this church, as a member of the Church of Christ, to reach the lost. But it's not the, your pastor's job. It's your job, it's my job, it's our job to reach the lost. It's as much, as much my job as your pastor as it is your job, anyone's job, to reach the, gospel, the, the lost with the gospel of Christ.
So when was the last time you invited someone? Or when was the last time you told someone about the gospel? When was the last time you invited someone to, to come and, and hear the word of God, to see the, the, the people of God together as they love one another and proclaim the good news of the gospel? Are you provoked? Are you incensed? Are you transformed? Is the, the lostness of this city changing you? Or don't you have a gospel to proclaim? Or is this gospel not good enough? Or is God not powerful enough to change the people that you come into touch with? Uh, sometimes we are incredulous. I was saying this week, I often have to battle myself with this incredulity, with this practical atheism that I think, oh, God is probably not going to be able to, to save this person. And you, you withhold from giving the gospel to that person. And not, not because I think that God is incapable of doing it, incapable of doing it, but because in me there is this incredul incredulous thing where I lull myself to not saying and not speaking. We preach the gospel. And we preach the gospel, verse 18, by telling them about the great Savior, about Jesus and the resurrection, verse 18. The beauty of all of, the, of this passage is that Paul has his interests or his emotions stirred, but he actually turned it into service. And that's critical. Let me just say this as we move to the second point quickly. Um, Well, let's move to the second point. So this is how the city affected Paul. How Athens affected Paul. How, how does Paul affect Athens? Quickly now, but for the sake of time. But we find that he met with Epicureans, two groups that he meets with to start off. Epicureans and Stoics. Just in a, in a very brief way, who are the Epicureans? This is important for us to, to understand. Epicureans were the philosophers of the garden. Back in Athens, at some point, uh, there was this garden that Epicurus, the, the, the founder of Epicureanism, had uh, established as a, a kind of school, as a kind of uh, col uh, college for, for this kind of philosophy. What did they believe? They considered the gods to be so remote, so distant, that, that the gods of, uh, to have no interest whatsoever or influence whatsoever in human affairs. Epicureanism would say that the world is all chance, a random concourse of events, of atoms colliding. And they didn't believe in atoms, or they didn't know about atom, atoms, but just randomness, nothing really happening for a reason. That this life was all there is. And because of that, Epicureans would say, well, if this is all there is, pursue life and pleasure. Whatever fancies you, because this is all you're going to get. Enjoy life. Forget about the pain. Forget about the uh, fears. Pleasure is what you need. Pleasure is the chief end of men. In Epicureanism. 
If you believe that everything happens by chance and everything is random and you believe that death is the end of everything and you just go into the grave and it is over and that the gods don't care for what you do or did, you, you would be an Epicurean too. I hope you can see how this is pervasive in our culture. People don't call themselves Epicureans, but that's how our culture behaves. Practical uh, rationalism. Pleasure is the end of man. You only live once was a motto for many years, uh, a few years ago. It was a, a motto that every, ch uh, that every teenager and young adult proclaimed as they do risky stuff, ris uh, stuff that, that was... Uh, probably going to uh, have consequences. You only live once. Grab it now. Do it now. This is existentialism. So who are the Stoics? They were called the, the philosophers of the porch of the Stoa, the colonnade at the entrance of the marketplace. That's where they would stand. It was founded by Zeno. They acknowledged that there was a supreme God in a pantheistic way. Everything is God, basically. The world was determined by fate. And human beings must pursue their duty. They must resign themselves to live in harmony with nature and reason. However painful it might be, you are to be a stoic. We use this word still today, right? When people are going through sufferings and, and they, they remain uh, un, un, unaffected. It's like he has a very stoic attitude. To oversimplify, they are the ones who emphasize fatalism, submission and endurance of pain. Perhaps the best way to describe stoic philosophy is by that a uh, poem written by uh, uh, Ernest Henley. We know it, it's called Invictus. We know at least the, the last uh, uh, stanza of that verse quite well. It's often quoted in many places. It matters not how straight the gate, our charge, the punishments, the scroll. I am the master of my faith. I am the captain of my soul. You see, for the Stoic to oversimplify even further... Who is God in Stoicism? Well, the Stoic himself is God. The Stoic himself, he's the ruler of his faith. He's the, the captain of his soul. And these two groups meet with Paul, and what do they call him? They call him a babbler. And here the word babbler is, is a word that, uh, that, that betrays the original meaning. Although I don't think there is any other word that would translate better, it's just Easier for me to explain. The word for babbler here is the word for a, for a bird that picks seeds. It was a word that was used for a bird that picks seeds in the, in the, in the, in the fields. In philosophy terms, to call someone a babbler is saying, well, what is this guy picking different strands of philosophy saying? He's a babbler. He's a seed picker. He's, he's, he's just bringing together all kinds of weird things is a is just seed picking because you know greek philosophers were very proud of their own schools they wouldn't want mixture between schools it's like i'm a stoic i'm an epicurean i'm a i'm a platonist i'm an aristotelian uh, in this case it's the stoics uh, and the epicureans they are there in the marketplace probably because the other ones they they thought themselves too highly to be in that place but 
That's a supposition. So they mocked him. They were calling him eclectic, but in the bad way. It's like, you're just a jumbled mess, Paul. What is it that you're saying? But there is a third group in this, uh, in this city. Others, it says, they were interested. He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. Wow, more gods, new gods, great, we, we love gods. Jesus, and he preached, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection, there is a sense here that perhaps uh, well, Jesus, they, they thought that because Paul is preaching Jesus, and in, in the Greek it would be Jesus' uh, resurrection is Anastasia, and Anastasia is a name that there is a Greek god as well, or goddess. Uh, they thought, oh, and he's bringing this Jesus and this Anastasia gods. Are, it's like they are interested. It's not that there was a conviction. There is no conviction. And there is not that there was revival here or any kind of particular work. Because what is it that we, we read in verse 21? They called him to the Areopagus, but it's not because they wanted, they felt convicted and there was a small revival happening in Athens. No. Luke tells us with, by the inspiration of the spirits because all of the Athenians and the foreigners there, uh, they, they spend their time in nothing else but desiring and wanting to hear new things. It's just mere idle curiosity. That's why they were so interested. Some mocked. Some were curious, as we read later after the sermon. Some were wanted to hear more, wanted, wanted to hear again. Some were contemptuous. But lastly, that's how Paul affected the, the, the city. Some were saved. And that's how I want to, to finish this first part. We read in verse 32 to 34. Some mocked. Some were curious. We, want, we will hear you again on this matter. And Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined. Literally in the Greek, some men glued themselves. In Portuguese, it's the same word. It's cola. It's the verb to, to glue themselves. Some of them glued themselves to Paul. Joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius, the Aeropagite, here I'll just say that Areopagus was the place where the courts, where matters were to be judged. Paul was brought before the court uh, to, to be heard about this new thing that he was speaking in the Areopagus. And the Areopagite, one of those there, was saved. And we read a common woman. She's not an, uh, anything special, at least we're not told. A common woman, she was not special, named Damaris. Well, she was not special in the eyes of the world, but she was special to God. She was saved. You see, well, and in, in someone else, we see, and others with them. Others were saved with them. So you see, Paul, uh, Athens left a deep impression in Paul, but Paul also left a dent in, the, in that city, in that Satan, in, the, in Satan's city, in that idol-filled city. Paul affected that city. Why? 
because he was willing to go. Even when he did not plan it, I assume that he wasn't planning on doing this. From where he says that while he was waiting, while he was waiting for Silas, he was not planning, but he was willing to go. He went down to the marketplace. He went to the synagogues, yes, as usual for Paul. But then he, even further, he went to the marketplace. And whoever came across him, whoever he bumped shoulders with, anyone and, and everyone who would listen, he was telling them about Jesus and the resurrection. He got his, dirty, uh, his clothes dirty. And God used them. Brothers and sisters, our nation is still in Athens, isn't it? Is it not Athens? All around us, Jonathan Edwards said, if man does not give highest respect to God, uh, if man does not give his highest respect to the God that made him, there will be something else that has possession of it. Men will either worship the true God or some idol. It is impossible it should be otherwise. Something will have the heart of man, and that which a man gives his heart to may be called his God. So I ask you, is it not our nation, our culture, this city, this district, is it not filled with idols? We are in Athens. We are in Athens. What were the, the, the gods that Paul was so incensed about? Athena, one of the goddesses of the, the Greek pantheon, the goddess of wisdom. Do we not worship wisdom in our society? Do, not we, do we not elevate it and rest upon it? We are a wise generation. We know better. Demeter, another goddess of the Greek pantheon, the mother, the, mother, uh, the earth mother. Don't we call her, we just call her a different name. Environmentalism. Poseidon, perhaps. What is the greatest fear of the, young, uh, of the younger generation? Oh, the sea levels will rise. Well, Poseidon might be upset and he will send the floods to come. Aren't we just as idolatrous? Hephaestus, the god of invention and of, of, of technology, of ingenuity. We love our technology. We rest upon our technology. Our technology is what gives us, uh, that's why we are better than we were. That's why we're so cultured. We're better off. Apollon, the god of music, the god of education, the god of culture. Ares, the god of war, power, god of manliness, a man's man. And not so much in the, in the last few years. In the, but we then have Eris, the god of women, the goddess of the sky, the feminism. Hermes, the god of travel and trade, of messages and athletics. Zeus, the god of power and force. Do we not worship them in our society still? Do we not elevate these things? Dionysus. Wait, this is a, a relevant one. The god of wine and drunkenness and lust. Aphrodite, the goddess of sex. Is not sex the, the, the main thing in the minds of many in our society? 
We, got, we have shrines for those gods in all places. They don't look like the shrines of Athens of old. But look around, look at the newspapers, look at, look at, your, at the advertisements on TV, look at what the, the news broadcasters tell you. Isn't those, aren't those the gods that we worship today? It's not even the, the Roman gods or the Greek gods. The Canaanite god Moloch, to which many sacrificed their children on, his, on, a, on that god's altar for prosperity. Don't we sacrifice our children, our unborn children, for, for the last 70 years, 80 years, for the last 100 years? We still have a nation filled with idols, a culture filled with idols. We just call them different names, and we worship them in different ways. We still have our Epicureans, we still have our materialists, we still have our, so our Stoics. The city is there. Brother and sister, your Athens is there. The question is, will you be provoked? Provoked like Paul was to action. Will you be provoked to have an effect on it? There is a desperate world in need of some, uh, There is a world desperately in need of the message of the gospel. Will you take it? Will you proclaim it? May you do so. Will you give your life? Will you die for their life? Will you be offered for them?